0: One interesting thing about the book of Daniel is that chapter one was originally written in Hebrew, but after that, the language of the text changed to Aramaic, which was the dominant language of the region at the time. However, Daniel chapter seven onwards reverts to Hebrew, no doubt because these visions that God gave to Daniel applied to the Jewish people. As we have looked at Daniel chapter 7 and 8, we've begun to see God's plan for the ages laid out and its relevance for the Jewish people will certainly become clear as we continue our study in the text of Daniel chapter 9 today, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel's third vision occurred in the first year of Darius the Mede, who was son of Xerxes. Xerxes, or Ahasuerus as it is sometimes translated, was quite a common name at the time. Meaning mighty man, it was a name given to several kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. It had been 12 years since Daniel's previous vision and now Darius had been made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom and thus this vision likely occurred before Daniel was thrown to the lions as recorded in Daniel chapter 6. Remember how Daniel's ongoing prayers to the living God got him into trouble with the authorities at that time? Well, here in chapter 9, we'll see what Daniel had been praying about in chapter 6. According to verse 2, Daniel had been studying the scriptures, in particular, the word of the Lord that had been given to Jeremiah the prophet, and from that, Daniel understood that God himself had declared that the desolate of Jerusalem would last 70 years. In the prophecy, Jeremiah revealed that the reason for the Jewish people being taken captive to Babylon was because they had broken their covenant with the living God. God had warned them to abandon their evil practices, and he'd commanded them not to follow the false gods of the region, but they'd paid no attention, and so they were were taken captive to Babylon. But the scrolls of Jeremiah also contain the promise of Jeremiah 29 verses 11 through 14 that said when 70 years of exile were completed, God would bring them back to the lands he had given them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God had a future and a hope for his people. They were to call upon him and pray. They were to seek him with all of their hearts and he would be found by them. Upon reading this, Daniel tells us in verse 3, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Knowing that their time of captivity would soon be drawing to a close, Daniel faced towards Jerusalem to intercede for his people. He began to seek God, not only in prayer, but with fasting. Fasting is the practice of going without food for a period of time in order to focus our attention and our affections upon God so that we might pray more effectively. Fasting is a powerful way of connecting with the Lord and it's been the practice of God's people throughout history. In fact, in the Gospels, for example, Jesus said to his disciples, when you fast, not if you fast. Not only was Daniel seeking God through fasting, he did so here with sackcloth and ashes, which were symbols for sincere repentance and mourning in his day. Daniel mourned and repented for his own sin and for the sin of his people. Verse 4 shows how Daniel began to pray. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. There is so much we can learn about effective prayer from Daniel here. Not only does he prepare himself for prayer, he begins his prayer with worship, declaring the truth about God, for God is great and awesome. He is faithful, for God keeps his covenant of love with his people. The Lord shows mercy to those who love him and who keep his commands. Notice, though, how love and obedience go hand in hand. Jesus would later teach in John chapter 14 verse 15 If you love me, keep my commandments You see, those who truly love God will seek to obey his commands not out of obligation but rather out of love and gratitude for all that God has done for them And then Daniel begins to confess and repent Notice that in verse 5, he says, We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Daniel didn't separate himself from his people. He included himself in those who had sinned and among those who needed to repent. And he did not make any excuses for their behavior. He knew that they should be ashamed. God had repeatedly warned them through his prophets and yet they had ignored the Lord and Daniel acknowledged that they had been scattered to the wind because of their unfaithfulness. Their own sin had brought disaster upon them. Verse 8. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. Do you see what Daniel is expressing here? He's expressing true repentance. He's acknowledging the sins that he and the people have committed against God. He not only named them, but accepted both the blame and the shame that comes along with disobedience. And yet in the midst of the sorrow that true confession brings is the reminder that the Lord our God is merciful. We need never fear bringing our sins before the Lord because genuine repentance will always call forth the mercy of God. Daniel knew that they were steeped in shame, and yet he trusted that God was merciful and forgiving just the same. He continued in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. God had promised Moses that if his people obeyed the commandments, they would be blessed. However, disobedience would have its consequences. Daniel admits that God is not being unjust or arbitrary. He's actually just following through on what he said would happen. The people had refused to obey the warnings, and as a result, disaster had come to Jerusalem, the like of which had never been seen before. And still they had not turned to the Lord. Verse 13, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. They had turned away from the living God and as a result, disaster had come upon them as a consequence of their sin. But we know from Jeremiah's prophecy that there was purpose in that hardship. Daniel acknowledged in verse 14, The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. God is righteous in all that he does and trusting in his mercy, Daniel went on to remind God of his past kindness when he had delivered his people from bondage in Egypt and Daniel asked for mercy once more. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Because of their sin, God poured out his anger on Jerusalem and upon the holy hill on which the temple stood. As a result, the people of God were being ridiculed by the nations around them. And so Daniel pleads for favor, not for his own sake, but rather for the sake of Jerusalem. And Daniel begged for God to return his glory to the temple that he'd abandoned. Give us ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel appealed for God to intervene, not because of his people's righteousness, but rather because of God's great mercy. Daniel understood that they had done nothing to deserve the Lord's help, but he also knew that God is kind and that repentance can bring renewed favour. Daniel believed according to the promise the Lord had made through Jeremiah that he would hear his cry. He would forgive and he would act on behalf of his people. And God did intervene just a few months later when Cyrus issued his decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland. You know, we have to apply what we see in the section of Daniel to our own lives. God often allows trials in order to draw us back to him as individuals and as a nation. He calls us to repentance and to obedience. And in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, he promises that in times of calamity, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We need to repent. We need to turn toward God asking for his forgiveness. And as we seek him with all our hearts, he will hear from heaven and heal our land. As Daniel cried out for his people, God spoke to him. Concerning Israel's future through what is known as the prophecy of the 77s. This prophecy takes up the rest of the chapter. Verse 20. Says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. You know, although Daniel has long been captive in Babylon, his whole life is still focused on the God of his ancestors. Daniel prays for the restoration of the temple, and he does so at what would have been the time of the evening sacrifice if the temple had still been standing. It is then that Gabriel appears and comes to him swiftly. Verse 22, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So Gabriel declares that because Daniel is highly esteemed, or in other words, greatly loved by God, the Lord sent him as soon as Daniel opened his mouth to pray. for the Lord wanted to give him insight. He wanted Daniel to understand. We too are greatly loved by God, and He wants us to understand Daniel's vision also. So let's re- read through the entire vision before breaking it up verse by verse starting at verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness... To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, I realize it may seem very difficult to understand at first, but the Lord will give us wisdom as we go through these verses again. In some translations of the scriptures, this prophecy is referred to as the prophecy of the 70 weeks. But it is very clear in this case that each week is actually a period of seven years rather than seven days. And that's why some versions of the Bible call this the prophecy of the 77s. And it details the events of what appears to be a 490-year period if you do the math, notice Gabriel declares that this vision is about Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. These verses are going to provide a sort of clock to give Daniel an idea of when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come, and also to indicate some of the events that would accompany Christ's appearance. The prophecy goes on to divide the 490 years into three smaller units. First, there is a period of seven sevens, which represents 49 years. A second period of 62 sevens denotes the next 434 years. And then Gabriel speaks of one final week, a period of seven years that is further divided in half or into two periods of three and a half years each. This prophecy is about the total eradication of sin and the establishing of righteousness. And verse 24 summarizes what happens before Jesus returns to earth to set up his kingdom as detailed in the book of Revelation. Gabriel reveals to Daniel, seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy." During the time period covered in this prophecy, several things will occur. God is going to put an end to the problem of sin, and of special note, there will be an atonement for wickedness. Now, we know when this occurred. Jesus atoned for mankind's wickedness by his death on the cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He has made reconciliation with God the Father possible. And Jesus has brought in an everlasting righteousness for all who believe in him and entrust their lives into his care. Having outlined what will happen, the angel then gives more detail, dividing the time period of seventy sevens into three different periods. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, But in times of trouble. So the focus here in this verse is the coming of the Anointed One, the Ruler, whom God had promised to send. In Hebrew, the title, the Anointed One, is Messiah, and when translated into Greek, that title is Christos, or Christ in English. So the focus here is upon the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Ruler, whom God had promised to send. And the time until he is to appear is divided up into two different periods for Daniel. There will be seven sevens and then there will be 62 sevens. Gabriel announces that the first period of seven sevens or 49 years would begin at the time that a decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, I know that we might immediately think that this is a reference to the decree issued by Cyrus that allowed the Jews to return home to rebuild the temple. But there is no mention here of the temple in what the angel says. In fact, This first unit of 49 years is related to the amount of time that it would take to rebuild the streets and the defenses of Jerusalem. And specific mention is made of the fact that all of this would be done in times of trouble. The New King James Version of this section of the text actually refers to a wall being built in troublesome times. So this decree then is not the decree of Cyrus, but rather it is a reference to a later decree by the Persian king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes had a cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah And after a discussion with him, the Persian ruler issued a decree in 445 BC allowing a third wave of exiles led by Nehemiah to return to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that can be found in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. If you go on in Nehemiah and read chapter 4 verses 15 to 18, You will see reference made to the fact that their work was indeed carried out in times of trouble that required those rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem to actually carry a sword with them as they worked. The second section of the prophecy relates to what will happen 434 years after the walls were completed. Now remember that these 434 years are the 62 sevens that we saw earlier. So let's see how that works out. Beginning with Artaxerxes decree in 445 BC, if we use the Jewish custom of only 360 days per year, 49 years to complete the walls, plus an additional 434 years, brings us to AD 30, which would coincide with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Here, we're told that the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. But the New King James version of the text puts it this way, saying that the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. After his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus would be condemned to death, but not for his own sin. He would be crucified, offered as a sacrifice in our place to pay our debt for sin. The prophecy then speaks of the people of the ruler who will come, referring to the Romans who would destroy both the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God just a short time later in AD 70. The Jews would then be driven from their homeland and scattered across the nations, and a cycle of ongoing wars with much agony and despair would begin. So 69 weeks of the 70 have passed, to the point of the Messiah being revealed and cut off, but how many weeks remain? just one, and because it is a period of seven years, we immediately begin to suspect that it could point to the time of the tribulation referenced in the book of Revelation just prior to Christ's return. According to Daniel's prophecy, what happens during those final seven years? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The he in this part of the prophecy is not named, but based on what we've already learned about that end time, we realize that the person who confirms a covenant with many for a seven-year period is the Antichrist, the ruler of the global government of that time. So what does verse 27 tell us that the Antichrist will do? He will make a covenant or a treaty with many that will cover the final final seven-year period. I would point out that this treaty is with many. It is not with all people. However, he will make a peace treaty with Israel that apparently may allow them to rebuild their temple because the only way that the Jews will be able to make sacrifices to God again is if their temple is rebuilt. However, after three and a half years in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, He, the Antichrist, will put a stop to their worship in the temple. He will put an end to their sacrifice and offering. And he will erect something that brings desecration to the sanctuary. We'll learn more about that when we study Revelation. The distress of those end times will continue until the Lord himself comes and destroys the Antichrist. You know, this prophecy of the 77s is complex and it's amazingly detailed. But one thing, however, is certain. God is working to his schedule. He knows the end from the beginning. Christ is coming. And who knows, we may even be here to see all of this fulfilled. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that the truth is we do not need to fear the future if we know the one who holds the future. Lord, you are working out your plan for the ages and your will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I thank you for continuing to open up the meaning of these prophecies to us and to help us to understand. We just thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus who makes everything possible and everything new. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.